So starting at verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not, uh, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which uh, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And the second passage is Revelation chapter 2, and that's on page 1, 2, 3, 4. Verse 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who came to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you have that passage in front of you? It's on page 1234. Uh, Revelation chapter 2. Many years ago, when I was a student, I worked in the John Lewis warehouse in the lighting department, and we dreaded the annual stock taking because everything was recorded and you discovered what was missing. The letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation are God's spiritual stock taking. And it's likely that they were actual letters to those churches, but they quickly had a wider audience. In this third and final year of our intentional discipleship program, we're almost at the end of studying the key doctrines and books of the Bible. There remains now the book of Revelation and the doctrine of what theologians call the last things, what God has purposed for the end of time. The traditional view is that Revelation was written by the Apostle John when he was in exile on Patmos, that's chapter 1, verse 9, which is an island off the southeast coast of modern Turkey. The church was facing a time of persecution and suffering, the period possibly that of the emperor Domitian, about 90 to 95 AD. Christians faced persecution then as now because they refused to worship anyone except God. 
In this case, they would not worship the Roman emperor. And the book of Revelation comes into the category of biblical literature known as apocalyptic, which means revealing. It's a revelation from God for Christians undergoing persecution. God was encouraging them with the knowledge that their troubles were not to last. And in Revelation, elaborate symbolic language is used to express the fact that earthly reality is not the only reality and that God will intervene finally and victoriously at the end of time. But back to Ephesus. It was the most important of the seven cities with a thriving commercial center. It was also a religious center with a magnificent temple in honor of Diana, the goddess of the moon, and the goddess of hunting. What is the result of God's spiritual stock-taking of Ephesus? There's approval and disapproval is the short answer, and both are evident. First, let's look at approval. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. The church at Ephesus has three particular strengths and qualities which are commended without qualification and which are admirable. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. It was firstly a church that worked hard. The church in Ephesus was a busy, active church serving God and the community. Their labors were widely known. Everyone played their part. There were no passengers there were no spectators. A follower of Jesus should expect to work hard. And the thought behind these words of hard work is to labor to the point of weariness. If we're serving Jesus as we should be, there will be times when we feel really weary. It comes to me at about half past six on the light party evening. I pray a little prayer and say, Oh Lord, please let this end. It's an extraordinary event with, as we've said, nearly 2,000 people coming through, children and carers, in two hours. Nevertheless, I believe that for some, it will be their first contact with the church and maybe their first step towards real faith. What hard work it is for Juliet and her team of helpers. That's why when we give a notice out, please help at the light party, we really mean it. We cannot do it without helpers, and we ask you, even if it's for a short time, at the beginning or the end in particular when we're clearing up, it's really helpful. I do believe that the light party is really worthwhile. We wouldn't do it otherwise, but it's not a picnic in the park. It's hard work. And so gently, I want to ask you this evening, do you play your part in serving God at St. Michael's? How would God assess your work and your effort for his kingdom? Here's a second admirable quality about the church. They kept going in the face of great difficulty. The Christians in Ephesus had faced some fierce local opposition. 
The city was a center for sorcery as well as many different religions. In addition to worship of Diana, it was also a center, as we've heard, for worship of the emperor. And Paul, who had preached against man-made idols, had been violently opposed by the silversmiths who made little shrines of Artemis, the Greek name for Diana, and we read about this in Acts chapter 19. And no doubt, Christians remained under suspicion and were very unpopular. Despite all this, the Ephesian Christians had refused to deny Christ. They were steadfast and loyal. I know your perseverance, Jesus tells them, and later says in verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. When he says, you have not grown weary, he means weary to the point of giving up the faith. Sadly, you sometimes see that, Christians who appeared strong in faith, but then give up, like the seed in the parable of the sir, which falls in rocky ground. Listen to how they're described. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. But that was not true of the Ephesian Christians. And here's their third strength. It was a church orthodox in faith, determined to maintain its doctrinal purity. Look at verse 6. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know exactly what it was the Nicolaitans believed, but it's clear that their teaching was seriously mistaken and they seem to have condoned immorality. And their evil and wrong doctrine was spreading through the churches in Asia. How did the Ephesian Christians respond to this? They were not credulous, believing everything they were told to be true. Jesus had specifically warned against false prophets who had come as wolves in sheep's clothing. They look nice. They look the real deal but they're not. Paul, in his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, as we heard in our first reading, also spoke of savage wolves who had come in among them. And note carefully what he said. Listen to this. Even from your own number, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. It will be surprising people, even within churches, who draw people away from being disciples of Jesus to being their disciples. So be on your guard, he says. More than once, the New Testament insists on the necessity of testing what is taught. When I say, please turn to page 1243, one of the reasons is you need to check that what I'm saying is true. That you're not just carried away by my brilliant and florid oratory. Why are you laughing? In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he says simply this, test everything, hold on to the good. 
And Jesus declared that they would demonstrate that they were true disciples by their lives and their behavior. By their fruit, you will recognize them. The Ephesians had tested those who claimed to be apostles. And as Jesus said to them in verse 2, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. It was not just the belief of the Nicolaitans which was wrong, but also their behavior. And the Ephesians had not been deceived. They were able to distinguish truth from falsehood. Now, I have to tell you that all this is completely relevant for the Church of England today. You need to understand that you need to use your testing gifts to discern the truth from what is false because it's within the church in a letter to the times newspaper in september canon dr gavin ashenden a chaplain to the queen set out two opposite views about the nature of faith this is what he wrote the tension on the one hand between a faith that recognizes the integrity of the bible and on the other hand, a secularized faith which prefers so-called progressive values antithetic to the faith. Do you get the point? They are two opposites. One for whom the scriptures have integrity and are authority, which is the classic position of Anglicanism. These are our roots. This is who we are from the very beginning. And this new teaching, which is a secularized faith, which prefers 21st century values over against the authority of scripture. It says, don't worry about that, that was then. Canon Ashton goes on. He then considers the results of these two opposite approaches. The present ominous decline of progressive Church of England Anglicans in relation to the flourishing of orthodox traditional Anglicans demonstrates the difference. Where the Bible is taught, there will be spiritual life and Christians. Trish and I had the great fun of going to a house party of a church in the Cotswolds, a great mixture of all shapes and sizes. And there was life. A 70-year-old man came up with tears in his eyes to say, I became a Christian last year. He was so emotional. His wife was just beaming. <laughs> Why? That church had taught the Bible. The average Church of England church is 40 in size. It's a declining church. The attendance on a Sunday is under a million. 40% of paid clergy will retire in the next five to ten years. And the answer is in Gavin Ashenden's letter. Are we zealous for the truth of the gospel in a similar way? Do we defend it? Do we speak up for it? even when its teaching goes against the prevailing culture. This is nothing new. 
It has always been this way. And if a church marries the spirit of the age, what do you think happens in the next stage? It becomes a widow. It has nothing of lasting value. Now you would think all we just heard about these three great strengths that all was well with the church in Ephesus. Wouldn't you? But you'd be wrong. Now we move to God's disapproval. Because the church had a very serious weakness. Look at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. The people had lost the love they had for God in the beginning. They'd forsaken it, even tragically as a man forsakes his wife to go with another woman. This picture of the hearts of God's people growing cold can be traced from the Old Testament to the New Testament because the heart of men and women are the same. In the book of Hosea, the people's love for God is portrayed like the morning mist or the early dew which quickly disappears. Isn't that graphic? In the New Testament, Paul speaks to the Corinthians, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's hearts and minds. You see, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. It's about a love relationship with, between God through Christ and his people. It's possible to be doctrinally correct hardworking, spiritually gifted, and yet have no or very little love for God or his people. And in God's eyes, as he tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, that means we are nothing. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Canon David Watson was one of our greatest evangelists and writers. He died in 1984, aged only 50. He preached his last sermon here at St. Michael's just 10 days before he died. He wrote a book when he knew that he had terminal cancer. It's called Fear No Evil, and it is a remarkable book in many ways. But here is what David said about his relationship with God, to whom he grew very close in the final year. God showed me that all my preaching, writing, and other ministry was absolutely nothing compared to my love relationship with him. In fact, my sheer busyness had squeezed the close intimacy I had known with him. I wonder if this speaks to anyone else as it does to me. We can be so busy that our love relationship with God 
is squeezed out. Good news. Steps to recovery. Three steps to recovery. And it starts in verse 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The first step is remember. Remember your first love for Jesus. Their relationship with God had plunged from the heights from where it had begun. They needed to go back and recall those first days of their relationship with God through Jesus. Then they had enjoyed a close walk with him. I remember as a very, very new Christian, the wonder of reading the Bible, opening it up and starting to read it and discovering to my amazement, God was speaking to me. Every time was a surprise and an adventure. What was going to happen next? You couldn't have stopped me from reading the Bible. And prayer, prayer was extraordinary. God answered prayer, rather surprising ways sometimes, but he spoke. It's no hardship to read the Bible regularly and pray regularly for me then. I prayed expectantly, excitedly. I even enjoyed giving money away to support ministries because I wanted others to discover the security, the peace that comes from knowing God in Jesus Christ. Such a relief. Why do Christians keep it to themselves? We all need to remember that first love for Christ. If you feel your love for Jesus has grown cold, then take time, make time, carve out time. One Sunday, one Saturday, even the harshest employer doesn't employ you for seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Do they? Carve an hour out for God. Look back. Look back to the cross. I love that phrase in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? At the end of this, there's going to be a time of quiet, just so we can spend a little time in Jesus' presence, just to begin to think about this, to remember. We sang at the morning service the last hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my right richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt and all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Maybe that will be a prayer, the beginnings of a prayer, to recapture, remember our first love. Secondly, repent. Jesus called them to turn around and change direction unashamedly. You're going the wrong way. That's what we need to do if we've lost our first love. And saying sorry is not enough. You know how it is with small children? Sorry, they say. And they don't mean it. I'm sorry. No, sorrow is shown by changing. We need to change our behavior. I was challenged by a speaker at the Burning Man Breakfast Bible Talks. He asked how much we thank God for all he has done and continues to do for us. And I thought, oh my goodness, 
it's slipped. It's not there. It's not there enough in my prayers. So whenever I pray, I try not to forget to give thanksgiving an important place, to count the blessings that God has poured into my life over the years. Repent. And then thirdly, do the things you did at first, when your first love for Jesus was so strong and powerful. On the marriage course, we ask couples to remember what they did when they were first going out and when they were engaged. Often they will have lavished presents and time and money on each other to express their growing love. But a few years into marriage, it's easy to have fallen away from that and exchanged it for dull routine and careless words. And as the couples recall those early months, they determine to go back to what they did at the beginning and their love for one another is rekindled. Do the things you did at first. And at the heart of all this, as we go back to the early days, as we repent, as we do those things, what we are doing is walking with Jesus. Walking with Jesus each day. Now Jesus ends these commands with some very solemn words. Look at verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And Jesus tells them if they disobey his commands, their church's existence will be terminated. John Stott wrote this, No church has a secure and permanent place in the world. It is continuously on trial. By the Middle Ages, the Christian testimony of the Ephesian church had been obliterated. A traveler visiting the village found only three Christians there. And it does not exist today. It is not there. Stott continues, Christ's warning to Ephesus is just as appropriate to us. Our own church's light will be extinguished if we stubbornly persevere in our refusal to love Christ. That's the test. Do we love Jesus? He continues, many churches today have ceased truly to exist. Their buildings may remain intact, their ministers minister, their congregations congregate, but their lampstand has been removed. Let us heed this warning before it is too late. And I believe we can see that in our country today. It looks sort of okay-ish, but I'm not sure how much spiritual life there really is going on. And it's a solemn warning which we should all heed. And it's a sobering question I ask myself of us here. Are we a church where we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves? That is what it's about. Many years ago, I was very encouraged because somebody said, I don't like coming to your church. You're always talking about Jesus. I thought, yes! Trisha and I went to a church. It was a Thanksgiving service for someone lovely, and Jesus' name was not mentioned once. 
The warning is followed, however, this cheers us up by a glorious promise to all who do hear and obey what the Spirit says to the churches. Look at verse 7. To him and to her who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And the word paradise comes from a Persian word which describes the private garden of a king. Only special friends who are called companions of the garden would accompany the king as he walked in his private garden. Jesus has a special invitation to every repentant Christian to walk with him in paradise, to enjoy eternal life with him in heaven, to have free access to the tree of life whose fruit was forbidden in Eden after the first human beings defiantly disobeyed God. All is restored. We are able to walk in the garden with Jesus unashamed. Well, confession is a good thing. Uh, Trisha and I love the West Wing. We have seen it, don't all say sad, um, four times, all seven series. We are starting on our fifth time. Of course, it's about the center of power in the White House. As the President of the United States rushed from one meeting to another, he would occasionally say to someone he wanted to talk to, walk with me. Walk with me. Walk with me. And that's it. That's Jesus' invitation to you and me today. Walk with me. Because you walk with someone that you love. And that is the lesson of the Church of Ephesus. They did not love Jesus enough to walk with him. And their lampstand was removed. They do not exist. And the church in this country will not exist if it doesn't love Jesus and walk with him. Let us pray. What a wonderful promise, Heavenly Father, that those who overcome, you will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What an amazing promise. And yet we tremble as we consider this church with so many fine qualities, and yet lacking the key quality. So we pray for ourselves individually and as a church because we know we're fallible and sinful. And we pray that you'd help us to walk with you, to change direction if our love for you has grown cold, to do what we did at first when we came first to trust in you. And we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to set our hearts on fire with love for you.
We're going to have a moment of quiet as you let the Holy Spirit speak to you individually. What is it that he wants you to do that you may love him with that first love and walk with him as a friend of the King?